welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Juleen Jackson and I'm with Moms for America, Vivian uh, as well. Vivian is in San Antonio. Al and I are finally home in Washington, D.C., Chevy Chase, Maryland, just about 15 minutes from the White House. So it's so good to be back with you all. Thank you so much for joining us on a summer busy evening. I know the evenings in the summer get busy. And it is the NBA draft tonight. Mm -hmm. So Al said to our 18-year-old son, text him, text him, uh, what is he supposed to text you? Any, any updates. Oh, any updates. Okay. So anyways, before we get started tonight, we are on a new Seminar 3. Oh, this is so good. This is so fascinating. Hey, this is my husband, Al Jackson. I always I always introduce myself, but sometimes I forget to introduce I you. I don't mind being that for thought. <laughs> Al, Al and I just arrived home from a four-day trip. We've been gone two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks ago, we drove across the country to a family reunion in Utah, had a minor, actually a major breakdown in Nebraska, our transmission, and, poof, and then we were able, by the grace of God, to get to Utah, and then we drove back across the country, picked up our car in Nebraska, dear friends drove us to Nebraska, because it's impossible to get a rental car that will only go one way, and then uh, my sweet Al has driven about 2,000 miles <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't let me drive because he thought I drove too slow. And so we just rolled in tonight, but we are so delighted. We are committed to you this did cause. About 50 of those miles. Did I do yeah. 50 of those miles? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, we are always so humbled to see you show up each week in the middle of the summer. We are on lesson nine. Mm -hmm. We are halfway through the Healing of America seminar. Hopefully everyone has their book, The Attacks on the Charter of Freedom. We're on seminar number three. So we've done seminar number one, which was God's hand in establishing America, how he worked through Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus, the pilgrims, our founders. We learned and were reminded that God was a, a God of miracles back then. And it, what it does is it always reminds me that he is still a God of miracles today. So chin up, move forward, it's going to be okay. And then we just finished our constitutional class, Legislar. Hopefully, you know, there are seven articles, 27 amendments. Our founding fathers gave us the first 10 amendments called the Bill of Rights, plus 11 and 12. And then all the amendments, 15 more amendments that came after. And some of those amendments were not inspired amendments. And hence, we have some of the problems we have today. So we know uh, that God has promised that this nation shall endure and that he can heal this land if we will turn to him. So we don't need to worry or, or you know, fret too much about who's going to win in the end. He does. We just want to make sure that we're on the right side, that we're in relationship with God, that we're on that wall, we're in the fight, we're doing all we can to... Uh, justify the heavens to intervene and for God to come and heal this land. And uh, we do that by showing up each week and studying and learning, armoring ourselves up with knowledge. So when opportunities present themselves, we feel qualified. Like Cherie said in her prayer today, we feel qualified and confident to do something, to teach, to share, to speak up. I just talked to one of the mamas last week 
who went through this Healing of America seminar and when an opportunity presented itself to run for her school board in Pennsylvania, she did. And she told me about a coalition that she started several months ago with just three parents at the time. And now they have over a hundred concerned parents that have gathered in this coalition that she started. So I, I imagine, you know, in January when she started taking the Healing of America seminar, she never thought seven, eight months down the road, she'd be doing what she's doing. So I promise you, as you get this knowledge in you, as you show up and study each week, just wait and see miracles unfold in your life. And so when you begin to feel these fiery darts penetrating in on your home and that umbrella of the constitution being removed, we'll, we'll know what to do. We won't be hopeless. We'll be anchored in hope. Now, I always tell the mothers, and, and we have many husbands online, don't worry if your husband is uh, not quite awake here or he's you know, thinking this is just your thing or vice versa or your teens or your Gen Zs or your millennial adult children uh, aren't quite on board with what you're learning. I mean, look, they have come up under a, a broken godless education system and they're a product of, of believing maybe what they've been taught in the school systems. And we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that tonight. But you just continue to be a quiet example. Don't fight with them. Just, just teach them your example uh, and your influence uh, will bear down on them. And, you know, I just remember last summer when we all went to the beach and it was right during the Republican and Democratic conventions and the elections were just a few months off and our three adult uh, children had come home and we had some really uh, fiery discussions at the beach about politics. And I was, we were a little bit worried about how they were leaning. But, you know, I, I was reminded, look, we can't influence our children if we don't have a good relationship with them. And so we just continued to teach them and talk to them and text them over the course of the next few months. And, and sure enough, you know, everyone kind of is coming around came around. And so, you know, God will help us soften our hearts when we feel like throttling some of our loved ones that don't seem to be understanding kind of these perilous times that we're living in. But I applaud you. We're here. We're ready to learn. And so let's turn to the introduction uh, of seminar three. This seminar is entitled The Attacks on the Charter of Freedom, the Unhinging of America. And this seminar really lays the foundation for the fourth seminar, which is called Restoring the Charter of Freedom. And it's really about, okay, well, what do we do to solve the problem? So we have to know how uh, it got broke in order for us to really uh, understand and appreciate the task of putting it back together, repairing and healing America. And so we're, we're talking about the unhinging uh, in this seminar. Now our founders intended, you know, America, what makes America great, uh, a door. They, they, they put this analogy that there has been a mighty door set in place to guard America's greatness, but our door has become kind of uh, unhinged and it's awkwardly adjusted. Are. And there were four hinges upon which that door was supposed to stay firmly in place. Our founders knew the importance of having an educated citizenry, a moral and an ethical society, a government of the people, for the people, by the people, and they wanted our country to be light into the world, not a dictator, but a model. And so it talks in, in this introduction about these different hinges 
and that this first hinge uh, about educating its citizenry and that people tend to behave according to what they believe. And the founders knew that unless the principles of their um, success formula were carefully taught to the people, the genius of what they gave us could be lost in one generation. And so this is one of the reasons uh, when the Northwest Ordinance was passed the same year that the constitution was written in 1787. In it, it said that they wanted three things taught in, ed to, uh, in education to children. They wanted religion, morality, and knowledge. And they said that it was important to teach all three things in order to maintain this republic that they had given us, a republic based on people's law, God's law, natural law. And the very first principle in the 5,000 year leap says that the most reliable basis for sound government and just human relation is based on natural law. Natural law is God's law. And so the, they knew the only way we could maintain what they gave us was we needed to remain morally strong and virtuous. And we needed to elect those kind of leaders. And in order for us to be morally strong and virtuous and morally stable, we had to have religion because religion would keep us looking up to God. And it would also allow us to maintain what they gave us in this form of a republic. Now, I just gave you the first four principles out of these 28 principles of liberty. There is power in knowing your principles. Imagine if you stood up in front of your school board and expounded upon those first four principles and why we needed religion and morality put into our school systems, put back into our school systems. That's what the founders intended. So anyways, they, they understood the, the importance of um, having religion and morality uh, along with knowledge taught in school. And we're gonna talk next week about the attacks on the moral fiber of our country. Our, really our founders intended that bolt of uh, a moral and ethical society to be the strongest because they knew our constitution, John Adams said, was made only for a moral and religious people. And it was wholly inadequate to the government of any other, he said. And then um, we talked, uh, we're gonna talk about in the third section, the attacks on the constitution that you know our founders put into place certain checks and balances. And we learned last week and in the last couple of weeks, some of these uninspired uh, amendments that have really been attacks um, on this constitution that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So they put, you know, these, these horizontal checks and these vertical, vertical checks uh, in place and, and what has happened to remove uh, some of those checks and balances. And then the fourth section of the seminar uh, talks about how our founders intended us to be a light on the hill, to have a strong sense of mission. I mean, they really felt that they were a part of the remnant of the House of Israel that came over here to America and that they were entitled to God's blessings of that Abrahamic covenant as long as we look to him. In Conrad Cherry, a distinguished professor of religious studies at Purdue University wrote a book called God's New Israel. And he talked about how the founders saw themselves as a new Israel, a chosen people for an awesome responsibility of serving as a light to the nations, a city upon a hill. And the 28th principle talks about how our founders knew that they had a manifest destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race. And what has happened, particularly in the last century, for us, you know, uh, 
to, to form enemies and entangling alliances. And um, we're, we're, we're not really living up to this, this destiny that our founders saw. So we're gonna talk about, you know, this, uh, why our door is, is kind of ajar a and uh, how we need to restore and repair this door. And that's primarily what we talk about in the fourth seminar. So anyways, the attack, let's turn to section one, seminar three, section one, the attack of the founder's educational dream. Now, remember last week we talked about in this last election with President Biden, that voter block from 18 to 24, 65% of those age kids voted uh, for President Biden, 11% more than any other age group turned out to vote in that age group, 18 to 24. And why is that? Well, they're a product of this uh, school system that we're going to study today. And so let's look at number one, the key to America's success. The founders emphasized that the key to the survival of the American, of the American success formula was universal education. Principle 23 says, in order for this free people to survive, we must have a broad program of general education. And that's what they meant. They didn't meant, mean government should pay for college for everyone. They meant the citizenry should or have even it. K through 12. Yeah, K through 12. Right. And so the founders knew that they had made a tremendous breakthrough. Thank you, sweetheart. Um, in, in progress, human progress, and setting up this first free people in modern times. And they knew that this blessing could be lost if they did not educate its citizens from generation to generation. So at the time, this notion of a universal education was very unique in the world. For example, when John Adams visited France, he was shocked to learn that out of the 24 million French men, only half of them could read or write. So the founders completely rejected this kind of European notion that education was only for the elite or upper class. And Thomas Jefferson speaks about this. He says, no other sure foundation can be devised for the preservation of freedom and happiness. Preach a crusade against ignorance, establish and improve the law for educating the common people. Okay, so we're going to talk about two cycles of education in our history. The first cycle, which I'm just going to tell you, is a glorious cycle. I mean, take me back to cycle one, is what I say. And then Al is going to cover cycle two, which you might just need to get your hanky out because it, it might make you perspire or cry or something. So the first cycle of education, uh, we passed through two distinct cycles. And the first cycle lasted 225 years from the time that the first colonists arrived in Jamestown in 1607 until about 1830. Okay, so we're gonna talk about that for a minute. The most uh, remarkable aspect of this first cycle was really the goal of excellence in education during this early colonial period. Now, you might not really think of it as a time of education, you know, as this country is being founded, but it was. Perhaps maybe this is uh, one of the reasons why is because by 1646, a total of 130 graduates of Oxford, Cambridge, and Dublin universities had immigrated to America. The strict discipline in educational preparation 
began to be manifested in some of our leaders, uh, our early leaders. For instance, John Adams described his young boy, John Quincy Adams. Now we know John Adams was the second president of the United States and his son, Quincy, John Quincy Adams would become the sixth president. And he said in describing his boy when he was 18, he said, well, he was fairly proficient in Latin, French and Greek. He also studied English and French literature and many of the uh, Greek classics and Roman and English and Greek histories. The theorems of, how do you say this word, Euclid? Euclid. 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 Plain tri trigonometry, algebra, decimal fractions, geometrical proportions, and conic sections. However, he still was a little weak in calculus. So that's how uh, John Adams described his 18-year-old boy. Now, we have an 18-year-old son who's going to be senior in high school. And after a year of um, COVID high school... <laughs> We're just hoping he graduates from high school. Mm -hmm. But you can see some of these early founders like Samuel Adams, the father of the revolution, went to Harvard at 14. Thomas Jefferson at 16 went to William and Mary and was studying law by the time he was 18 for five years. It says, remember, we talked about in the first seminar, he would study 12 to 15 hours a day for five years, the law. He, and Thomas Jefferson knew five languages. And it said when he went to um, go be examined before the, uh, the bar, his law examination, he knew more than the men uh, that were examining him. And so at this time in history, uh, the direct responsibility for educating children was placed on the parents. And by the late 1700s, we were beginning to see the first fruits of freedom under the laws of the constitution. Now, Noah Webster, um, he's got a quotation here that says, all government originates in families and if neglected there, it will hardly exist in societies. The foundation, Noah Webster said, of free government and of all social order must be laid in the families and the discipline of youth. The education of youth is of more consequence than making and making laws and preaching the gospel because it lays the foundation upon which both the law and the gospel rest for success. And Noah Webster, he would go on to write the 1828 Webster Dictionary and he was a great patriot. He served in the uh, he was a representative for the state of Connecticut and the president of Amherst University. And he would go on to be the author of spellers that for five generations would teach children how to read and write. Webster's Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary, yeah. And so children were taught these basic foundational beliefs in the family, and they were either tutored by mom and dad or mom and dad found the best minds that they could find to teach uh, their children. In fact, Puritan law enacted in 1642 required that parents make sure that their children could read well enough to understand religious principles and capital laws before they went to school. And uh, we began to see by the 1700s a real demand in Boston for reader spelling books and primary readers. Home education, homeschooling was so common in America that most kids knew how to read and write before they went to school during this first cycle. And it's interesting that most of these colonial youngsters learned how to read, master their little letters and vowels and, and um, syllables phonetically 
by reading the scriptures, reading passages again and again with the little, you know, little fingers pointing the way. And uh, we were um, on our journey across America. We stopped in at Lincoln's in Springfield, Illinois, the presidential library. And, and there I saw a little snippet how he did learn how to read. His mom had taught Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, how to read from the Bible. My mama was born in 1834, deep in the country in Unionville, Missouri. Your mom, 1834. Did I say 1834? Yeah. 1934. And I'll never forget her telling me that every night her mother and father would read to those three little uh, redhead girls the Bible before they went to bed. So this was not an unusual thing even in the early 1900s mid-1900s, that children were learning how to read through scripture. Gradually, influential writings emerged on the scene, and hence we see um, 100 million copies of um, Noah Webster's book on uh, a gram grammatical institute of English language and the American spelling book. And these books, all these little books, spelling books and readers that the children we're learning uh, from contained spiritual rhymes and biblical principles. Over a hundred millions of uh, hundred million of those were sold at that time. Okay, in 1836, along comes a man, an educator by the name of um, William McGuffey. Have you heard of the McGuffey Readers? It was fortunate, thank you, sweetheart, that for America, God placed upon this continent at that time one of the greatest educators of all time. McGuffey was a gifted teacher who produced a set of educational primers, which included all aspects of moral character and God-centered principles. His books, uh, there was a strong emphasis of the basics, the basics of reading and writing and arithmetic and oral communication, literature, music, history, the basics in civics and American system of constitutional government, what, what it took to be a good responsible citizen. Even he talked about, he wove in his little primers, his little books about physical and mental health hygiene and also respecting uh, one's elders. So the books range from elementary, just beginning readers up until high school and they're little stories and he would integrate in there the basics of all those things listed there in our books. So um, we have these and I actually put them right on this hutch right behind us. This is what they look like, the McGuffey readers. And this is how children learn to read uh, during the 1800s. And, and reference throughout are all references to the Ten Commandments and little, you know, the Golden Rule and um, Bible stories are woven in, uh, in the pages of these readers here. I would highly recommend <laughs> you getting this and adding this to your library of freedom. You know, it seemed like when my kids, our kids were growing up, I had every Disney book on the shelf. And I began to realize Disney might not particularly be my friend. So um, I can't wait to start to have grandchildren. And I think I'm going to actually start having our 13-year-old um, at night when we have our reading time. I'm going to have her start reading some of these McGuffey readers. I wonder if Alvin, our 18-year-old, if he would. There's some good stuff. Yeah, in there. yeah. Not, you can get I got those on Amazon. Yeah. 
for $92. I looked it up today, $92. So it's a little bit of an investment, but I'm thinking if I'm going to read something to my children and grandchildren moving forward, I, I want it to be something of substance, you know? And so anyways, the McGuffrey readers, these readers were national best sellers. And by the turn of the century, nearly every child in America was studying from one or more of the McGuffrey readers. Eventually 120 million copies of these McGuffrey readers would be in print. And this was unmatched by any other publication except for the Bible and Webster's dictionary. Parents expected leaders and teachers to drill into their students the necessity at this time in the history of our country, the necessity of being trustworthy and loyal and helpful and courteous and obedient and kind and cheerful and thrifty and brave and clean and reverent. And it would be these principles that would be incorporated into the laws of the Boy Scouts of America and also would be the attributes that would be taught in the little red schoolhouses all across the nation at that time. Now, as we talk about the Boy Scouts, you know, it's interesting that when they stop emphasizing God's law and uh, living under the oath, which they had established, the Boy Scouts was established in 1910, of being morally straight and honorable. When they stop emphasizing these principles that were emphasized in the readers as well, the McGuffey readers, what happened last year in 2020, February 2020, the Boy Scouts of America filed bankruptcy because of all their sexual abuse cases. Now, the Boy Scouts headquarters is just right down the street from us in Washington, D.C., and it makes me wonder if it will even be in existence in a few years from now because they don't, they don't live by that law they don't they don't emphasize these attributes anymore and it's not doing so well in fact i know the church we worship at was it two years ago pulled out of the boy scouts and, and our we no longer participate in that so you can see what happens when you remove god and god's law uh, from organizations that were based on uh, these very precepts so this first education, a cycle of education, really stressed a need to continue to improve and, and, and perpetuate what our founders had given us. And uh, James Madison even says that in the Federalist paper there, 14, that it is incumbent upon its successors, us, to improve and perpetuate what they gave us. So in 1831, when that great French author Alexis de Tocqueville came to America, because the world was curious, what in the world is going on with this new nation? They seem to be having such great success. And he stayed for two years and he went back and wrote that book, Democracy in America. And he said, it cannot be doubted that in the United States, the instruction of the people powerfully contribute to the support of the Democratic Republic. And such must always be the case, I believe, where the instruction, which enlightens the understanding, is not separated from the moral education. He was also astonished to Tocqueville by the knowledge that children had of the Constitution and how the American system operated. He noted that many of the children were studying out of a book of questions and answers, Q&A, called the Catechism on the Constitution that was written by 
Arthur Stansberry and published in 1828. Kids were learning the constitution through this catechism. I would really recommend getting this. I think it's only 10 bucks on the Moms for America store. And um, it's just a series of kind of Socratic method of asking questions about the constitution to cue them to, to learn certain concepts. And I have done this at the breakfast table with my children. I would just ask them a couple of questions in the morning. I, I have a dear friend who's a grandma. And she says every time her grandkids come over and they sit around the table, she'll pull out the catechism. And so um, this was Alec de Tocqueville's observation that so many of the kids seem to have a working knowledge of the constitution uh, in the 18, uh, 1830s. The founder's formula for education propelled America into world leadership, not only in education, but in industry and science and agriculture and medicine. And it really produced an enviable standard of living by uh, the world standards. And it, it also produced a really charitable nation that the, the world had not seen up until this point. And so here had just been 110, 120 years from the time the constitution was written. And even though we held only 6% of the world's population, we were now producing 50% of the world's wealth and countries were trying to emulate our educational and governmental system of success. And hence at, at this time in, in the history of our country, many people were looking to America for the best and greatest opportunities. And we see now immigration beginning to occur, uh, students from countries everywhere wanting to come and learn uh, the leading edge information from our country and all that it had to offer. And, you know, in fact, some nations were fearful that what they were seeing was a brain drain from other countries as there were so many immigrations, a sign of the time that something very unique and special was going on in America. Now get ready, because Al is going to start to teach about the second cycle of education. Okay, thank you, Jeline. Welcome, everybody. So the second cycle of education begins right around the mid-1800s. And what we're seeing at this time is the unraveling or undoing of the founder's desire to have religion, morality, and knowledge taught in the classroom, as Julene so beautifully explained. And we're starting to see now, during this time period, removing the influence of a mother and religion from the school system. And it began in 1847. And there's an individual in our booklet that's highlighted by the name of Horace Mann. And he became the first secretary of education for the Massachusetts School Board of Education, which is actually the first board of education ever created. And man advocated, and first of all, he was a humanist and he was also an atheist. He advocated the idea that the authority and responsibility of education should be shifted from the parents to the state. And some of his philosophies included the fact that children should no longer be held responsible for their natural instincts of behavior, but were to be looked upon as innately good. Now we know that most people, the average person is not naturally evil, 
but to say that they're naturally good is problematic because we all know that the natural man is an enemy to God. We have to work at being good, but to just make that assumption is puts us on the precipice of not acknowledging the hand of God, which changes us from the inside out. So just think about that in terms of, of course, an atheist would look at it this way. So on number three there, it says mankind was to be measured, was to be the measure of all things, not God. Children were now to be taught that they were, that there are no absolute values of right and wrong. So taking morality out of the school. And that one's decisions are always based on a particular situation at the time. So you might want to put in your notes there the term situational ethics. Situational ethics, meaning, for example, thou shalt not lie except. So Horace Mann also further stated that what the church has been for medieval man, you know, he's looking backwards, the public school must become for democratic and rational man. God will be replaced by the concept of the public good. The common schools, schools supported by the government, shall create a more far-seeing intelligence and a pure morality than has ever existed among communities of men. Now, these are the words of Horace Mann. And the interesting thing is, he comes along in 1847, the people reject this outright, but he's planting seeds. He's planting seeds. Horace Mann basically said in that statement that churches are old-fashioned. He also continued to promote his educational philosophies and convinced many parents that their children had a right to education and that the state ought to see that they got their rights. So that means the government must pay for education, taking the parents off the hook. And that was counter to what the founders envisioned. The founders wanted the parents to be invested in the education of their kids. In fact, Thomas Jefferson said education should be encouraged, not mandated by the state. These are the beginning seeds of the thought of what we have today, which is compulsory education. And now I know when we live in Utah and in other states, it's a crime to not have your kid in school. We are, they're embarking upon compulsory education taken away our agency. Of course, the founders advocated for universal education, but they wanted that to come from the parents and from the people to promote these things. And as I said before, in 1847, the people rejected these ideas. However, the seeds were planted. So we fast forward to the 1900s where things really begin to change. And so we have this new philosophy, this new world order of secular humanism. In the beginning of the humanist movement, it represented something that the founders actually admired and it's called, and it started out as a Christian movement. So leading church people of that day believed that God intended mankind to find beauty and happiness in this life, not just in the next life. That these religious humanists, as they called themselves, emphasized the need to promote science, better architecture, better homes, better human relations, development of the arts, and et cetera, et cetera, 
for the happiness of mankind. And this version of humanism spread to America and was embraced by Jefferson Washington and many of the founding fathers. So then we have this new version of humanism, that secular humanism that was embraced by Horace Mann. And it put the emphasis on physical pleasure rather than merely happiness. Physical pleasure as opposed to just merely happiness, being happy. So secular humanism teaches the following things, that there's no creator, that there are no inalienable rights, that there is no fixed standard of morality. A system of morality, of morality controls the conduct of people in terms of what's right and wrong, which makes each individual a moral free agent. This communism cannot stand. So to lie, is that wrong? A humanist would say, not for a good cause. To kill, is that wrong? The humanist would say, not for a good cause. So there's no divine purpose to life. Man has no soul. Man has no responsibility to any supreme being for the way he treats his fellow man and that there is no divine judgment. You can't do anything wrong in a secular humanist world. And so in America, powerful groups espousing secular humanistic philosophies began to demand significant changes in the system and eventually infiltrated most educational circles. So as Abraham Lincoln said, if you can change the philosophy of the classroom in one generation, you will change the philosophy of government in the next. So Jalene said at the beginning of our lesson today that we all have read the book. We know that we win in the end. The key thing is in this battle is to not have as many casualties. And what we're seeing today are our kids are being targeted to become those casualties. And they're using the education system to do that. And now we see the results of that, that we have a generation of individuals who don't love America, who want to focus on the atrocities of America or what happened to us as opposed to what we did or what we can become. And the adversary is very, very patient. And so these seeds were beginning to be planted in the mid 1800s, and now we have them today. So these groups of secular humanists, the first group calls themselves populists and demanded that the federal government use income taxes to compensate, confiscate some of the property of the rich and then redistribute it. The second group consisted of wealthy and industrial and financial leaders, and we're gonna talk about this a lot in seminar three, who wanted the federal government under their influence to take more forceful control and regulating the economy so that you can curtail competition. So you see the Carnegie's, the Morgan's and the Rockefeller's who wanna change our system of government, put more power in the hands of the executive, more regulation to curb or curtail competition. And the fourth group is a group of leading intellectuals who rejected the spiritual and moral foundation of the American formula and wanted to eliminate it from our education system. And that's Horace Mann and enter now John 
Dewey, who we see his name quite a bit extolling him for his contributions to the education system. And he came around in the 1900s. John Dewey was the first president of the American Humanist Association. Please look up humanists when you have an opportunity, as humanists believe that human experience and rational thinking provide the only source of both knowledge and a moral code to live by. They reject the idea of knowledge revealed to human beings by gods or in special books. In other words, the scriptures. They reject the idea of knowledge being revealed to human beings by gods or in special books, which means the scriptures. So in 1933, John Dewey signed the Humanist Manifesto, consenting to the false principles that it contained. And at the heart of that is atheism, society-based values, immorality. You know, it's interesting to note that John Dewey, and, and this will blow your mind, was one of the original founders of the NAACP. I guarantee you 95% of the people in the world today have no idea of this, that there was a group of humanists and atheists like John Dewey that set up the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Margaret Sanger was also one of the original founders and she's the mother of Planned Parenthood. It is, for some reason, I want to say 80% of Planned Parenthood clinics are in neighborhoods where there are black and brown people. So when you look at the black community, and, and I, I firmly believe this, the black family was the moral fiber or the moral barometer of America, where the marriage rate in the black community from the 1960s from the Civil War to the 1960s was above 85%. And it's the exact opposite today as we have 75% of black children who are born to homes where there are no fathers. And even during the depression, the 1930s, when the unemployment rate among black people was 40%, their marriage rate was still the highest in America. So what's the best way to undo that moral barometer? you start by unraveling the family. So then we've got the creation of the NAACP. So John Dewey also believed that humanism was actually a religion and that the teachers are the prophets. He said here, number six in our, in our manual, faith in the prayer hearing God is an unproved and outmoded faith. There is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, the immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or moral absolutes. So Horace, Horace Mann's ideas were taken and organized by John Dewey and implemented into the educational delivery system. In an effort to modernize education, he encouraged the abandonment of the one-room schoolhouse concept. Families used to go to school together, regardless of their age. So the six-year-old 
went to the same school as the 13-year-olds or the 18-year-olds. They were all in the same building or the same classroom. We had the opportunity to send our kids to a school where they took K through 12. Everybody was in the same building. So it was so funny when our kids would come home, one kid would rat the other kid out. Hey, I saw such and such at the assembly with his arm around a girl. Caleb would come back and report, hey, I saw Franklin in the assembly with his arm around some girl. Or can you imagine if little Alvin, who's six, is walking to class and somebody who's older than him wants to bully him? And some other kid says, hey, Frank, who's in the 10th grade, is watching everything you do, bro. So you might want to think twice about it. But what John Dewey wanted to do, and this is where we come into elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. So we want to break these kids up, break up these families where peer pressure replaces the influence of a family, where your friends now become more important than your family. It was all done by design. Divide these kids up and replace the family with peer pressure. In 1916, Dewey published his book, Democracy and Education, in which he advocated for an entirely new revolutionary approach to child training. And the American schools had never been the same since. In fact, he took this book and took it to Columbia University in New York City, which was the school largely responsible for educating and training our teachers. Very smart. Instead of going from school to school with this book, I'm going to start where they teach the teachers so that they can take this crap and spread it throughout the country. He called his brainchild, this book, Democracy and Education, as progressive education. Now, we know today where that has gotten us. When we, when we took God out of school in 1962, we used to be number one in the world, and now we're in the middle of a pack of industrialized nations. And we keep trying every year, no child left behind, no child this, common core, and all this other foolishness, when all we need to do is go back to religion, morality, and knowledge. Let's see here. What else can I highlight today? I think, I think, then, Julian, I'm going to turn it back over to you because John Dewey looked upon the schools as a wonderful opportunity to indoctrinate the American youth in the virtues of a glorious age where private property, the free market, open competition, and profits would all be eliminated. It was all done by design. Okay, over to you, Samira. So if you were to Google Horace Mann or John Dewey, these educational reformers, Wikipedia is very kind to these men. You would not really catch on <laughs> uh, uh, that they were godless men and that they were against moral education. In fact, over 100 schools in America are um, named the Horace Mann. Horace Mann elementaries or Horace Mann middle schools. And so if you know anyone that goes to a Horace Mann school, you might want to pull, pull them out of there quickly, quickly. <laughs> you might want to rethink. And I think it's interesting how Al said the two, these men understood, just like Hitler understood, the two greatest deterrents to educating and controlling children 
is the mother and God. And so what they did by breaking up, you know, how the kids were educated in, uh, under one roof, isolating the families, and then they would make the school day longer. So nowadays in high school, you have your kids leaving the house at seven o'clock and then all their activities, sometimes they don't roll in till seven o'clock at night, diminishing a mother and a father's influence on that child if they're only in, uh, you know, at home for a couple hours at night. And then as they uh, began to get the court systems to remove God out of the schools in the mid 1900s, we'll talk about in a minute, no prayer, no Bible reading, no even pledging. Uh, this is how they were able to begin to control these kids, diminish the influence of mother and father and take God out of the schools. Uh, and I think we see that today in this whole notion of critical race theory, because I, I firmly believe that those individuals who are a product of a school system that has encouraged them to not like America and not like freedom, they now want to create little social justice warriors like themselves. And the way to do that is in the classroom yeah. to get the, the minds of these young people. Yeah. Teaching them that they are either oppressors or they are oppressed and kind of the, this cultural divide. That, right. That, right. Instead of, instead of guiding our kids to the challenge, like we used to do, we now pat them on the head and tell them they're a victim and that they can't improve or they won't have success unless that group of people over there change their behavior. That is so debilitating and takes away the moral agencies of these young people to be all that they can be. Okay, so how did John Dewey and, and these types of people, secular humanists, godless atheists, how did they begin to implement these things into our classroom, into society? You know, at first, their philosophies and ideas that they were developing were really resisted by many Americans, but a monumental transformation was soon to happen that distracted the citizens away from traditional education with this fundamental God-centered um, base, and that was World War II. World War II changed everything. The men went off to war. The women came out of the homes into the factories. And then when the war was over in 1945, all the uh, soldiers and sailors and ex-airmen came home and they had this GI Bill and they swelled the college ranks and ed adult educational programs expanded. And we were hearing calls for educational reform. And then in 1957, the Soviet Union beat America into space with the launch of the first satellite space called, um, a satellite called the Sputnik. Have you ever heard of that? The Sputnik. It was the first Soviet Union satellite into space. And overnight, there was a clamor that we were falling behind, that we needed more advanced curriculum in our school systems, and we had to catch up. We had to reform the schools, and, and maybe the federal government, we needed to allow them uh, to have more influence in their uh, power begin to mushroom. And we were so concerned. Uh, it was during this Cold War period, 1957, that, you know, there was kind of that saying, we'd rather be dead than red, communist red. And what they didn't tell you at that time, the Sputnik was actually uh, put up 
by American technology. It was launched by American technology in Russia. And many will say this was a part of the propaganda to get citizens to buy into the fact that we were failing in our education systems. And so we needed a different type of education, more advanced curriculum. But in order to you know, put those studies in, they had to begin to take out God in the history of our founding fathers and books on morality. And you saw uh, a, a slow, you know, removal of this. And over the decades, when you take God out and what begins to creep in, as we've seen, anti-God, anti-religion, anti-founding fathers. And so you come into the 60s and, you know, we see all kinds of societal changes going on with the civil rights and integrated schools and increased job opportunities for women, latchkey children, even nutrition started to go down with TV dinners because mama was now leaving the home and we're kind of up against the backdrop of the Vietnam War. And, uh, and now children, our TV is going on and kids are growing up under the influence of TV and the TV shows are kind of trying to imply that there's a generational <laughs> gap between mama and the children and daddy and parents just don't understand you. Yeah, I think one thing there, it says they're integrated schools. That, that's highlighted as a negative, but that's really not a negative. It's, it's a positive to have integrated schools. The thing that is... The interesting thing about that is it was forced integration. And so Booker T. Washington, Julius Rosenwald, the chairman and CEO of Roebuck, Sears Roebuck, got together with local communities and built 5,000 schools to help close the educational gap between black kids and white kids in the South. When we had forced integration from the 1954 Board of Education, Supreme Court case forcing integration, guess what happened to those 5,000 schools and the teachers, usually black teachers that were employed in those schools? They all went away, they went poof because we labeled them automatically as inferior and the black community really suffered from that because black businesses went down and black teachers lost their jobs because we had to take, we took the black kids out of their schools and put them in white schools. And I'll never forget what Clarence Thomas said. He said, a black kid doesn't need to sit next to a white kid to learn how to read. So that's that's the reference there that we make for integrated schools. Okay, Jimmy. Yeah. So as we sow, so shall we reap. The result of this experimental society became obvious as we went into the kind of that 60s hippie lifestyles and flower children and drugs and the music and the acceptance of atheism and anti-religion and movements against prayer and draft dodging. And what you began to see is a rapid decline in academic achievement and an increase in dropouts. So by, 18, by 1983, five independent studies by leading educators across the country began to call for a return to the basics, the McGuffey basics, whereas they said they are presently uh, seeing uh, our education system is being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that is threatening the very future 
of our nation. And their findings in this 1983 commission showed that there were 23 million uh, adult Americans functionally illiterate. 13% of of 17 year olds in the US were uh, considered illiterate. Some of these some of these statistics might be a little outdated, but what they showing was there was a decline. And most interesting, I think, by the 1980s, the average achievement of high school students on most standardized tests was lower than when the Sputnik was launched in 1957, when we thought we were falling behind. We were when we were at the top of our game and we thought we were falling behind, though, because the Russians beat us to space. And what had happened 30 years later with all this advanced curriculum and taking out God and religion and morality from the schools, this it shows you what happens when you took God out of schools, because now our achievement rates were lower than in 1953. Uh, uh, Education analyst says here, Paul Copperman, each generation of Americans has outstripped its parents in education, in literacy and economic attainment for the first time in the history of our country. This was in the 80s. The educational skills of one generation will not surpass will not equal, will not even approach those of their parents. And I think a lot of parents saw this last year during COVID when kids took to school online and the parents could actually hear (laughs) what was being taught and what was going on. I can't tell you how many friends said after that experience of being able to watch their kids, what they were actually learning. Uh, They they didn't know their kids were that dumb. (laughs) Yeah, really. And how uh, inferior the curriculum really was. And so, you know, we'll see uh, over those, you know, the decades in the 1900s, this this concerted uh, drive to use governmental agencies to secularize um, all phases of public education. And we'll talk about this next week, but how the courts pulled out you know, prayers and Bible reading and how the teaching of spiritual values and morality was eliminated from the schools. And it even says here in our uh, seminar, um, I can't, I'm not sure which page it is for you, but how they did a study of fourth grade readers uh, and they saw the drastic drop in stories with moral lessons that were reflected in the readers of fourth graders uh, from 1810, there were 16 mentions of moral lessons. By 1910, there were only four uh, uh, out of 25 pages. There were only four mentions of uh, little moral lessons. And by 1960, there were zero mentions of Ten Commandment Bible stories, those kind of things in the little readers that children were using to learn how to read and how it has led to not even having children being able to pledge because the word God we lived in, you know, Hood River, Oregon, and the kids couldn't pledge because of the mention of God. And so we began to see, you know, since that launch of Sputnik and us government getting more involved in changing the curriculum from the basics of reading and writing and religion and morality to some of these more advanced notions of, you know, we went from civics and history to social studies, which is not really based in, in fact. Uh, it's just a study of human interaction. So instead of studying, you know, citizens' interaction with government, the role of government in our civics classes, we now have social studies. And that was really one of the impetus 
for me to start, along with some other mamas, a cottage meeting in Hood River, Oregon in uh, uh, 2010, because we were worried about what our kids were being taught about, you know, our founding fathers and the deviancy of capitalism, because we were seeing, you know, these kids that didn't think America was so special. You know, in fact, we're seeing today kids that don't revere our history and, and even hate our history. And, and we're seeing it played out right now with the Olympics and how some of, you know, these young Olympians, you can tell, uh, you know, their feeling for America isn't what it has been in days past because they probably don't even know the stories of America or they have been taught, you know, that our founders are racist, degenerate hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And so representing our nation, you know, it, it's about their brand and representing them. You right. know? Or, or taught about Jesse Owens. 1936 Olympics representing America, black Jesse Owens in the Berlin Olympics. He probably had a little bit of stress too, but still performed, still performed and waved the flag at the end because he represented America. Yeah. So I'm gonna turn it over to you. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so remember what I said originally when I first started talking, what Abraham Lincoln said, you might wanna put this in your notes, the philosophy of the classroom in one generation is the philosophy of government in the next. So then during this time frame, you start to hear people talk more about how the constitution is outdated and it was written for their day, but it's not for our day. We need to go to a new form of government. They don't understand the checks and balances that were built into the constitution. And then they started to, and we're gonna talk about this more in more detail and more depth, if you can't attack the doctrine, then you go after the personalities. So that's when you start to see history rewritten, where you start to see Ben Franklin, who was known as the golden patriot, the father of morality. Money is spent to distort history and change that narrative associated with him or with Thomas Jefferson and this whole Sally Hemings story. You start to see the government being used to move us away from a free market economy to a highly regulated one. We're going to see more and high taxes, greater national debt, the Supreme Court decisions will mandate and decrees which un unlawfully amend the provisions of the Constitution. The United States went from virtually no debt to the, the largest debt in history, where we're now it's somewhere over 31 trillion dollars. So the nation was also taken off the gold and silver standard without a constitutional amendment. You've got executive orders that are now have the executive of our country writing laws from the executive branch with no check and balance from the judiciary or from the legislative branch. So you can see how if you can start in that classroom and you can start teaching kids about what's wrong with America instead of what's right. America should be defined not by its failures, but by its promise. So if you can lessen those ideals upon which the nation was founded, where all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and make it all about slavery, the degenerative, and hypocritical founding fathers, if you can do that, if you can minimize these individuals, then you can change the government. 
And that's where we're headed, is we're moving towards what we call democratic socialism if we're not already there yet. Okay, Jolene, back to you for the conclusion. Okay, so our manual would infer that we're entering into a third cycle. And one of the greatest values of the second cycle is that it woke us up. You know, there's this resurgence of patriots that are wanting to make America great. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump was elected four years ago, a man who'd never run for office, but we knew that we had strayed from our original moorings of our founding father. Remember, Donald Trump wanted uh, to enact a 1776 curriculum to teach, you know, properly the founding and the greatness of America and the greatness of our founders. And what we see today is the 1619 critical race uh, curriculum, 1619 project. 1619 project being uh, pushed into our uh, schools now. And so we're awake and we want to get back to the basics, the McGuffey basics of God and family of freedom, where we can say Merry Christmas uh, in school, where we can pledge the flag, where we can honor and revere these figures of history instead of wanting to take down their statues and uh, and so, um, you know, it's been said here, if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might have viewed it as an act of war. But as it stands, we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. So Seminar 4 is really going to talk about how we can restore this vital educational base that our founders laid for us in the first cycle. You know, the greatness of America is real. And, um, but we need to acknowledge that the door set in place to guard its greatness has become unhinged. And we're gonna talk next week about the assault on the moral fiber of America, that foundational hinge. So look, seminar three isn't meant to be depressing, but I think it's chilling because we recognize that some of these things have happened on our grandparents or our parents or our watch. And, you know, it's important to know we, we can't really fix something that we don't know how it got broke, that there indeed was a concerted effort on the part of entities and groups and people, enemies of America and freedom and God to fundamentally change what our founding fathers gave us. So, you know, we need to be reminded that this nation shall endure and that God can heal this land. But, you know, it might seem... <laughs> that we're on the verge of crumbling. But I truly believe it will be the mamas, it will be the daddies, it will be the families who love America, who love God and understand our founding father's successive formula. We will be the staff upon which the nation will lean when it seems like things are on the brink of ruin. And we can be confident in knowing that this nation won't fall and the constitution won't be wiped out. Remember Thomas Jefferson said these principles were going to be eternal. But you know, you think, what is it gonna take for us to turn around? You know, God says, just repent, turn, turn from your wicked ways and repent. But if not, he will compel us to repent. Will it be some sort of sweeping crisis? Will it be a plague? I mean, we kind of saw somewhat of a plague, if you want to call it that. 
uh, with COVID or will it be a political crisis of ruling elites or over oppressive government or a natural disaster? Al and I were just talking somewhere between Ohio and Pennsylvania today when we were on the road uh, that, you know, we're just a few seats in both houses from Republicans winning in, in 2022. But, you know, we do, part of the solution is getting a body of leaders that are saturated in constitutional principles to kind of help rally the people in our nation back. But I even think more than Congress, we just need enough righteous families who love America. I mean, we're not talking perfect families, but are, are at least trying to look to God and trying to keep their families close and are trying to learn the wisdom of the founding fathers. And so when the time is right, we'll know what to do. I think that's one of the reasons, look, we sent our kids to public school. We, I, we homeschooled for a time. Some of them were private school, but mostly they were educated in the public schools as most kids in America are. But I think that's why I thought our family devotional in the mornings was so important where we would study scripture for a little bit. We teach them a story of America and teach them a constitutional principle. We review the headlines of some newspapers because we wanted them to hear it from us first you know, what we felt, what was going on in the world, and if it was correct, how it was being presented in the news. And we'd sing and pray. And I think what we did in that morning devotional did more to offset maybe some of the falsehoods or narratives that our kids were being exposed to in the school systems, right. because they were able to mm -hmm. discern truth from error when they right. heard something that was not quite jive with right. what you know, they had been taught. We would we would teach them stories from history of people who overcame, like the Jesse Owens. Because when things get tough, instead of quitting, you can lean upon those stories. And they inspire you to just keep going, to keep fighting, to keep at it, that you're part of something, you don't let down your teammates, that you're part of something that's bigger than yourself because of the sacrifices that went in to get you where you are today. And so we have to remind our kids of these stories all the time too. And, and half the time they're not even listening, but, <laughs> but believe it or not, they, they really are getting something. And it's those stories that these young people can draw upon that will inspire them to overcome things when it gets tough. We, we're, we're raising a too soft of a generation of people who just wanna quit when things get hard. But if they can understand the stories and the sacrifices that went in to get them where they are, they'll think twice before they just quit. Yeah. And so many of those great stories were taught in seminar number one. Those stories teach kids what courage looks like, what right. faith looks like, what patriotism looks like. Uh, Frankie told me recently, our 23-year-old basketball boy, he said, Mom, I, I know you thought I was sleeping through a lot of those devotionals because my eyes were closed. Usually. But... <laughs> He said, I really wasn't. And I know he wasn't sleeping because when I go to his NBA games and he's the only kid with his hand over his heart, I really believe it's because of what he learned in those morning devotionals and those stories of patriotism and courage and grittiness uh, of our founding fathers. And so what we teach in our four walls of our home really can offset some of the nonsense that they're being taught in the schools. And so we don't have to be historians or constitutional scholars, but we do have to teach precisely and brilliantly some of these things. And so I really commend you 
mom and dad and grandma and grandpa for coming and learning these things because you can then go and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren as you learn them. And God really will reward your efforts to put in the work to learn these things. So that is our lesson for today. Thank you so much for your attention. 